Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. This morning we have a guest minister, Jürgen von Hagen from Germany, bringing God's word to us. Jürgen is a longtime friend of this church. He's a visiting professor here at, at uh, Indiana University, and so he makes uh, extended trips here a couple of times a year, and we enjoy those seasons that we get to spend with Jürgen and hear about the work that he's doing back home. He is an economics professor at the University of Bonn, and he is also a pastor of a church in Serum, Germany, and he is doing good work there. Not easy work, but good work. We're delighted to have him here. Open your hearts to him as he brings God's word. Jürgen. Thank you, Jody. Good morning. Jody got that wrong. You know, I, I teach at the Kelly School, indeed. I teach an online course every fall, and every time I do that and I tell somebody about it, immediately the answer comes, well, you could teach that from Germany. And I always say, that, but that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I need that teaching to come here because I love this church and I love you people. And this is the time of the year when I refill my tank. It literally is. So I'm very grateful to be here this morning. Um, my wife and my daughter, for those of you who met them, they are already back in Germany. I will have to leave on Thursday. And uh, before I do, I wanted to bring you some greetings and some pictures. So maybe you can put up the pictures. Freie Evangelische Gemeinde Sturm is your little sister in Germany. It means Free Evangelical Church. Uh, this is the church where since 2014 I have the privilege to be the pastor. And only a few years ago that was a church of a little under 30 people, um, only old people. The average age was somewhere around 80. Um, this is um, a performance of our young people. And you can see there are plenty of them. You can also see that they're all black. We have a large African community in that city in Mülheim, Germany. And, um, and a lot of them are good Christians, and they found their spiritual home in our church, and I think it's a miracle. I don't know what you think about that, but it is a miracle. And so you can see lots of young children. These are the older German people from our church, and this is actually from a church uh, retreat that we had in the spring. Um, so you can see they're sitting there and chatting, which is what old German people do. Uh, if you take the next picture, this is what younger people do. Actually, there are some Africans and some Iranians there. Now, the young people all go to German school, of course. They speak German. And this spring, we started something that's another miracle. For the first time in probably 30 years, we started a young believers class for youngsters at the age between 12 and 14. This 
typically takes about a year and a half and they learn the foundations of our faith. And you know, one of the surprises I had is that I actually enjoy teaching them. It's really odd. I've, I've, I would never have thought I enjoy that kind of people. Uh, that, that age, I mean, <laughs> that age, because I'm used to teaching students and adults. Although sometimes you think, well, adults. Uh, and so this, this, again, is from that church picnic. You see the young women there dancing in a circle. And then the last picture is my wife chatting with some of them. And um, you know in that young Christian's uh, class, these kids study like crazy. And you know why? Because for every good answer, they get a gummy bear. So, so greetings from Freie Evangelische Gemeinde in Mühleimstürm, and please continue to pray for them as we pray for you. Now, my text this morning is Psalm 37, and that's a wisdom psalm, and it needs a little bit of introduction before we actually go to the text. It is part of what we call wisdom literature in the Bible. In the Old Testament, that's the books of Proverbs and Job and Kohelet, and then a bunch of Psalms. In the New Testament, that would be the Sermon on the Mount and the letter of James, for example. Now, if you ever wonder what wisdom is, I found out last night, where's Josh? Is Josh here? Ah, over there he is. Josh and I found out, we were going down to Jasper last night to that German restaurant. And so as you drive into Jasper, there's a huge sign saying Weisheit. And Weisheit, of course, is the German word for wisdom. And you know what it is? It's a gun store. And so you laugh, but it's actually not so funny because there's a lot of explosives in there and a lot of power in a gun store. But the wisdom we find in the Bible is more powerful and has more bullets. And so I just thought, I never expected wisdom to be a gun store. But anyway... <laughs> Wisdom is actually, in the Bible, it's the art of living a good life. And now you ask, what is a good life? Well, in the Bible, a good life is not necessarily a life in great wealth, nor even necessarily a life in good health. It's a life in which you have achieved the purpose and reached the goal of your being. Now, what is that? The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. And so the whole point about wisdom is to tell us how we do that. How do we live a life that glorifies God and enjoys him? One of the key words how you recognize wisdom literature, interestingly, is the word Happiness. Psalm 1, verse 1, the first word. Happy is the man who does not sit with the wicked. 
happy is the man. Or Psalm 34, verse 8, what we read earlier, how happy is the man who takes refuge in the Lord? Happy. Now, what does that mean? It means two things. Number one, God wants you to be happy. Some people teach that the Christian faith is all about suffering here and have happiness in the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is already here on earth, and God wants us to be happy here. But there's another point there, which is you will only be happy if you live in a way that glorifies God and enjoys him. And so you see thousands of ads on television and wherever, and they tell you, buy this and you'll be happy, eat this and you'll be happy, go to that island and you'll be happy. No. Wisdom says, if you want to be truly happy, then live according to wisdom. Live a life that glorifies God and enjoys him. In the psalm we're going to hear, wisdom tells us that the man who lives according to the word of God will find peace, and God will give him the desire of his heart and salvation and justice, and what else is that but a happy life? So if you want to live a good life, if at the end of the, your days you want to look back and say joyfully, it was a good life, then follow and apply what wisdom tells us. Wisdom literature gives us instructions. The first instruction in the psalm is do not fret. And another one is commit your ways to the Lord. And we should understand that these are not moral commandments. These are not commandments like do not steal. It's more like a piece of advice. And it has less to do with what we do and more to do with what we are. If you look at the Hebrew text, what we translate as do not fret actually would be more precisely, don't be continuously burning with anger. So it's not so much what you do, it's what you are. And a better translation of commit your ways to the Lord would be make absolutely sure that you are fully trusting the Lord. It's not what you do, it's what you are. Such instructions and in wisdom are based on general human experience, such as the righteous will be well in the end and the wicked will perish. And you see immediately that wisdom speaks in black and white, in big contrasts. The righteous will be well, the wicked will per perish. And, of course, the psalmist knows as well as we do that such statements are not true always and everywhere. There are wicked people who die with a lot of money and very satisfied with themselves. God lets that, lets that happen. And there are righteous people who suffer all of their lives and die suffering, and God 
lets that happen. But not always. Because if God never punished the wicked and never gave the righteous people their rewards, how could we then say that God loves his people and hates his enemies? Okay? So it's general experience, but there are exceptions. And therefore, it's good to follow the advice that wisdom gives us if we do our lives in all likelihood will be good and happy lives. Now, one other thing. Psalm 37 is poetry, which means it is art. It's a piece of art. It is the word of God. It's divinely inspired, but it is art. And you have to recognize the art in order to appreciate the psalm. Of course, you can read the psalm in its English translation and you get something out of it. But if you really want to enjoy it, I want you to know a little bit more about the art. Now, one is that this particular form of poetry is what we call an acrosticon. An acrosticon is a poem where the first line of the first verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first line of the second verse begins with the second letter of the alphabet. The th first line of the third verse begins with the third letter of the alphabet, and so down 21 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That gives the text a very strict and very rigid form. And you can try it out at home. We have a few more letters, but try it out. Write down all the letters of the alphabet and then put the flows of a text, the flow of thought that you want to express into that form. It's very skillful, okay? This is great art. And secondly, the composition of the psalm is structured by numbers, like many Hebrew texts. Psalm 37 gives us 21 instructions. For those of you who are good in math, 21 is three times seven, right? And three in the Bible is a holy number, as in the Trinity. Seven is a holy number, as in seven days of creation. And so three times seven, that's not random. That's part of the art here. Furthermore, the three times seven instructions come with three times 12 or 36 statements, 12 about the life of the children of God, 12 about God's actions in their lives, and 12 about the wicked. And three is a holy number, 12 is also a holy number, as in 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. So again, this is not random. This is part of the composition. And if you dig a little bit into the text, you realize this numerical structure, then you discover that this is a song with four voices, like uh, Phil's choir has four voices, right? A bass and a tenor and an alto and a soprano. And this song, this psalm, has four voices. The first is the voices of instructions. That's going to be in black print, and it's me reading it. The second voice 
speaks about the children of God, and that will be uh, Phil reading it, and it will be printed in green. The third vo uh, voice speaks about how God acts in the lives of his children and the wicked, and that's going to be in blue, and Jody will read it. And then the fourth voice fell on Caleb. I'm sorry. That's the red print, and it speaks about the wicked. And so if those men would please come up here and read the psalm together with me as we listen to the word of God. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Seize from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. 
The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord, and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord and it's eternally true. You will have noticed that the psalm presents us with two distinct kinds of people. On the one hand, there are the righteous, the just, the upright. They are the people who wait on the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord, who are blessed by the Lord. They are the saints of the Lord. They belong to God. In the Bible, to be righteous before God means that your relationship with God is exactly as the Lord wants it to be. And what is it like? They trust God. They are righteous because they believe in him and they have faith in him. As the Lord says in the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And a just or an upright man is a man whose conduct is good because he lives according to the law and the commandments of his God. He lives a life that glorifies God and enjoys him. On the other hand, there are the wicked, the evildoers, the workers of iniquity. These are all the people who have no respect for the law of God. They break it as they wish. They oppose God. They oppose his people. They desire to harm God's people. And now wisdom teaches us that there are only these two kinds of people. The good and the bad. The righteous and the wicked. The children of God and the enemies of God. And that means there is no middle ground. This side, that side. And if you find that shocking, then let me remind you that Jesus teaches us exactly the same in Matthew 12 and in Mark 9. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who is not against me is on our side. So what does that say? It says there is no neutrality before God. You're either with him or you're against him. 
but there's nothing in between. There are only two kinds of people. And I don't like that, I must admit. I would rather have some middle ground somewhere because there are people who I know have no faith in Jesus Christ and I find them nice. And I'd rather think, ah, yeah, they're somewhere in the middle. But no, wisdom says there are good people, there are bad people, there's nothing in between. And we have to know that. Why? Because happy is the man who does not sit with the wicked. We have to know where we sit. Otherwise, we'll never be happy. Now, the fact that there are only these two kinds of people would not be much of a problem if those two kind of lived far apart from each other. You know, the children of God on one big island and the wicked on another big island with an ocean in between and they have nothing to do with each other. They can't even call each other by cell phone. And isn't that how we wish we were as a church? A lovely bunch of people in a town up on a hill surrounded by a wall so that no bad people can come in. Yeah, but that's never true in life. The children of God live in the midst of their enemies. Jesus himself sent his disciples like sheep in the midst of lovely people, right? No, in the midst of wolves who were ready to eat them. And Jesus prayed to the Father in heaven not to take his disciples out of the world, that's out of the wicked, but to keep them from the evil one while they are in the middle of the world. And the fact is that even in the church, there are people who are wicked, who desire to destroy the church, who desire to destroy its peace, and they sometimes succeed in doing that. Now, I'm not saying in this local church, although I know in this church there have been people like that. But in the broader church, there are people who are there to destroy the church because they have no faith. They put themselves at the center. They want to rule the church instead of letting Jesus rule the church. And Jesus told us that. Jesus speaks of that in the parable of the tares, where he says the evil one got into the middle of the field where all the, the wheat was growing, and the wheat grows with the tares, and the tares grow with the wheat, and Jesus says it will take until judgment day, until he will separate. And that's when the church will finally be free of bad people. Jesus also warned his disciples of destructive people within the church in Matthew 24. And similarly, the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 warned the church of Ephesus, the elders of Ephesus, that there would be people in the midst of the church rising up in order to split the church. It's part of the historical experience of the church. They are, the children of God cannot escape the enemies of the Lord in this life. Now, even that, 
even that would not be such a big problem if it were not for the fact that the children of God, the righteous ones, often experience something very disturbing, something that undermines our faith and that causes us to start doubting. And that's the observation that the wicked people often seem to fare much better than the righteous ones. Often the wicked seem to be much better off than the righteous ones. The wicked are often more successful in their jobs. They have more beautiful women. They have more money, more power, bigger homes, faster cars. And sometimes they are even healthier in their bodies. Now, I'm not saying that being rich and successful is a sign of being wicked. Our father Abraham was very successful and very rich. But it is often the case that we observe wicked people and they seem to be doing just fine. And it, and it is often the wicked people in the church who have the money and the influence to lure the sheep away from the word of God and lead them astray. And the children of God often experience what verse 16 of, of the psalm says. They have little and the wicked have plenty. So, how do we deal with that? What is our response when we see that godless people have all the success and all the fame and all the prestige and we don't? Doesn't God love his children and hate his enemies? Shouldn't his children have greater success and more money and faster cars and more prestige than God's enemies? That's the question this, those are the questions this psalm addresses. And the quick answer is, do not fret. Do not fret because of the wicked. Don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. Do not fret because of him who prospers his own way, which means who devises and executes evil and selfish plans. And it sounds like, well, you should just be quiet and stop complaining, which we all do very well, right? <laughs> stop complaining. Don't fret. Just accept it. But people, can this really be the way of a good life? Pure resignation? I don't like that. I do not like stoicism. And this is stoicism, the philosophy that you just take everything as it comes and you keep calm. When I was a kid, my mother often made me play trouble with my older sister and my older brother. Do you remember Trouble? Trouble is a board game where you have to bring four little guys from your starting place around the board and home. And because I was the youngest in the family, it always turned out that my brother and my sister had already three of their little guys at home and I had none and then my brother would kick me out and I had to go back to start. And 
Before I could say anything, mother said, do not fret, because that's the German name of the game, do not fret. And you know what? I hated that game, and I still do. I don't like to play it, although my wife says I should play it with my children, but no, I find that stoic answer much too cheap. Do not fret is not wisdom. And thankfully, do not fret is not the whole answer that the psalm gives us. A good life demands a lot more. And the first it demands is the assurance that the wicked, the evildoers, the enemies of God, those who prosper their own way, may seem to have a lot of success, but their success and their wealth are bound to fail in the end. And so... That's what the psalm tells us. Let's listen again. It's, wisdom says, The wicked shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. For evildoers shall be cut off. Yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will carefully look for his place, but it shall be no more. The wicked plots against the judge, the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. And so there are three points that wisdom tells us here. Number one, it tells us how we recognize God's enemies. Number two, it assures us that their wickedness will at last turn against themselves. And number three, it says, whatever they have as riches and as success, it will go away. It will not last. How do we recognize the enemies of the Lord? By the way, they treat his children. The wicked people plot against the children of the Lord. They threaten them. They gnash their teeth against them. They have no patience. If things are not going their way, they become angry. They rant. They try to get their way by force because they have no fear of God. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Galatians that anger, quarreling, violence, and jealousy are sure signs of wicked people. That's how we recognize them. They use their money and their influence to intimidate the children of God. They speak evil of them. And we know that from without the church and within the church. In Germany today, wicked politicians and journalists ridicule Christians who care for the poorest of the poor in the country. That's the refugees from Africa and Asia. And in this country, the righteous are shamed as haters and ridiculed as deplorables. 
In many churches, those who have money and influence speak badly of those who truly serve the Lord. They play their own schemes against them. They wait for one thoughtless word to accuse them public and publicly. They sow dissent within the church. That's how we recognize the enemies of our Lord. Second, the psalm assures that the malice and the wickedness of the enemies of God will sooner or later turn against them. The wicked draws his sword against the poor and the needy and against those who are of upright conduct, but their sword enters their own heart. Wisdom tells us that malice and wicked scheming will destroy a man's life because he becomes so entangled in his own lies and his own schemes that he has no escape in the end. Wickedness and malice destroys a man's life because his bad thinking and his bad doing poison his own heart. And in the end, he cannot do otherwise and think otherwise. And you cannot build a good life on bad thinking and lying and malice and wickedness. And so it turns against the man himself. And third, the psalm gives us a glimpse into the future. The godless one, the wicked, the evildoer will perish. Why? Because their strength and power and money and wealth and everything is nothing against the power and wealth and strength of the Lord. The successes and the riches of the wicked are temporary at best. They will vanish like smoke and wither away like grass. The wicked disappear and nobody remembers them, even though they seem to be exceedingly successful just a little while ago. We had a man in the church I pastored previously who thought he was really a big, important man. And he was. He was one of the richest men in that little town. And he was a doctor. Everybody looked up to him. And everybody in the church thought, if he stops giving, then we're doomed. And he was in the center of every quarrel and every conflict. And he was out to destroy that church. It took us months to expel him. And when we finally did, he left a lot of bad words behind. And then six months later, he called me and he said, my doctor told me I have cancer of the liver. I have four more weeks to live. I was shocked. And then he called me and said, would you please come and forgive me? And I realized that God had been very gracious to him. But God is not gracious to every one of his enemies in that way. You know, they disappear. They're gone, like this man. Down into the grave. Nobody talks of them anymore. To end like that cannot be the end of a good life. Jesus talked about such people in the Sermon on the Mount. 
saying they have had their reward. That is the Lord's quintessential statement about the Pharisees, the important people of his time. They have had their reward. What it means is the fame and the respect and the prestige they had in their society, that was all they had to expect in their lives. And they had had it. And so Jesus is saying they have no hope of resurrection. They have no hope of eternal life. They have no hope of forgiveness of sins. They have no hope of being in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a terrible statement about a life? Can that be a good life? I just hope that when I die, Jesus will not say, Jürgen has had his reward. No, I want to see the Lord and his glory. And so wisdom really tells us, do not fret because of the wicked and do not be envious of evildoers for their success and wealth are short-lived. And that certainly sounds a lot better than simply do not fret. But then the next question is, how can I be sure that this is really true? And Psalm 37 gives us an answer and says, well, it is because of what the Lord does in the lives of the wicked and the lives of the righteous. So let's listen again. He shall give you the desires of your heart. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord upholds the righteous. He knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help him and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust him. And so again, three points. First, the Lord knows the wicked, the godless, the evildoer, because no one can deceive God and pretend to be something that he's not. The Bible says that the Lord weighs our hearts and that means he recognizes what's in them. He tests and knows whether our hearts are good or bad. And so God recognizes his enemies and opposes them. He laughs at the wicked because the wicked thinks he's a big man. And God says, you're a midget. You're a nothing. You will disappear. God himself wipes out his enemies, wisdom says, 
And so what does that mean? It means there's no natural law in the world that the wicked have to perish. If they perish, it's the Lord's doing. And he will do it. Second, the Lord also knows the righteous ones, the just and upright. He knows all those who wait on him. He weighs their hearts too and sees the good that is in them. He has prepared a land for them, a homestead in his kingdom. As Jesus said to his disciples, I will go and prepare a mansion for you in the house of my father. The righteous and just have an everlasting goal of their lives, one that will never perish. You realize what the wicked have is just temporary. What the righteous have is everlasting. Because God has promised it and God God always keeps his promises. And therefore, the righteous and the just do not have their hope in themselves like the wicked. They have their hope in the Lord. And that's an absolutely sure hope. Third, on the way to this goal of their lives, God is faithful to the righteous and the just. They may stumble. They may stumble because some bad person attacks them, but God doesn't let them fall. He keeps them by his hand. They may lose their balance because of their own sin, but God will not let them fall down entirely. He is with them and helps them in every calamity. The Lord orders the steps of the righteous and upholds them so that they are not completely cast down. Why does the Lord do that? Because the righteous do what God expects them to do. They trust him. They have faith in him. They rely on his power rather than their own strength. Therefore, the Lord does what the righteous expect of him. He saves them. He brings them to the good end of their lives. And that's a good life, a life worth living because it comes to a good end. So how do the people who trust the Lord live? And how do we recognize them? Again, the psalm has something to say about that. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. The righteous shows mercy and gives. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful in lands, and his descendants are blessed. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. And so, again, three points. First, how we recognize the children of God. Second, the psalm assures us that their lives are good lives. And third, 
it tells us that their happiness will last forever. We recognize the children of God first and foremost by the fact that what? They pray a lot? No. They are meek and patient. They wait on the Lord. They do not act rashly. They do not try to get their way by force. They know that the Lord is on their side. They wait until the Lord acts and defends them. They do not do anything out of wrath. They do not quarrel. They do not rant. They patiently and tenaciously do what is right and what is the will of their Lord. They know that meekness and patience are no signs of weakness when you have the Lord on your side. Jesus cites this psalm in the Sermon on the Mount. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the Apostle Paul calls patience and meekness fruit of the Holy Spirit. The upright and the righteous have the law of God in their hearts, it says here, because the Lord himself has written it on their hearts. He has given him his Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's kind of natural for them to act according to the word of God. They do so without any special effort. They enjoy living according to the word of God. They like to do good. They like to be generous without expecting to be, to be paid back, without expecting any special recognition. They lend freely and they give to the needy because they know that their Lord will provide for them and they will always have enough. And now people do not despair. This is wisdom. It's black and white. So don't listen to these words and say, well, that's not me because I don't like to lend and it's not easy for me to give because I don't have much. Listen, we all sin. And we all know that God forgives our sin if we have faith in him and we confess our sin. He is faithful to forgive. And so don't despair when wisdom says they love to give and they love to be generous and you're not exactly. Because wisdom also says when you stumble, God will uphold you. Okay? So don't despair of these words. Second, the children of God experience a lot of suffering, difficulties, and hostility, but they will not be ashamed in evil times. Now, a man might be ashamed of his life when he comes to the end of it and he real realizes that he is a complete failure in the eyes of somebody else. The all-important question is, who is that somebody else? Wicked people always think that the righteous should be ashamed because they don't drive the same cars and they don't have the same big homes and they are not as successful. And so the wicked think the righteous are deplorable. They should be ashamed. But for the righteous people, that's not important for them. 
Because they don't ask what the wicked think of them. They ask, what does my God think of me? And they know because I have faith, God approves of my life even though I'm a sinner. God will bring my life to a good end. And therefore, they are not ashamed. And the assurance of God being with them gives them the strength to be meek and to be patient. Now, a man might also be ashamed when he realizes that he put all his hope on someone or something that turns out to be a failure. There was like 10 seconds in my life when I was young where I thought I should be the world's most famous violinist. (laughs) And if I had followed that voice in my head, I would have all reason to be ashamed now because my fingers just don't get it. Okay? You could be ashamed if you put all your hope into something that is not true and not reliable. But a righteous man puts his hope in the Lord. And the Lord is not a failure. He's the Lord of the universe. And whatever he wants it will come to pass. And therefore, the righteous will not be ashamed. Third, the happiness of the children of God lasts internally. They have a place in heaven. Their inheritance is an eternal one. God guides and protects them forever. When he judges them, he will not condemn them on account of their faith. They have a good and a sure future with their Lord. And therefore, they know that God has ordained a good end to their lives. That's a good life if it goes to a good end. So wisdom tells us that there are two kinds of people in the world, the wicked and the righteous ones. And over and between them stands the Lord who knows both and who brings the wicked ones to fall and perish and who upholds his children. And earlier we asked the question, how should we deal with the experience that the wicked ones so often seem to be more successful and richer and doing better than the the children of God? And wisdom says, well, now, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can live like the wicked, Or you can live like the righteous ones. You can live like the wicked. You will never be happy. You will perish. Anything you achieve will go away. You can live like the righteous ones. And whatever you have and more glory will be there for you eternally. And so the question is, how should we then live as children of God? And wisdom gives us a few instructions. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. Wait on the Lord, keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. And so again, there are three points here. Number one, do not fret because of the wicked. Or more precisely, do not be burning of anger always. It's okay sometimes for us to be angry. Jesus was angry. Right? When he drove the money changers and the guys who sold animals out of the temple. Jesus was really angry. And the man Phinehas, who killed the Israelite and the Moabite harlot, he was angry. And God said, he was good. That was good to kill that man. He glorified God by doing that. Sometimes we have to be angry. God says he's a zealous God. That means he can burn of anger. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. Children of God must not constantly burn of anger because if we do, then we become like the wicked. It will turn against our own hearts. And therefore the apostle says, be angry and do not sin. And wisdom essentially says the same here. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only causes harm. Children of God do not take their right into their own hands. They let God work for it. Second, be patient. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He shall give you your heart's desire. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, Stop warring, for the Father in heaven will give you everything you need. Stop warring. Warring in the Greek language essentially means you just look at yourself. All you can see, all you can think of is what you are and what you need. And Jesus said, Stop that. Look at your Father in heaven. And then you can receive what God wants to give you. But patience must be learned. And it can be learned. More than anything else, it requires trust. Trust in the Lord. And therefore, wisdom tells us to commit our ways to the Lord. Entrust your life and what you do to him. He will guide you and give you what you need for a good life. And there's one important part of this in this psalm which is worth mentioning. Wisdom says, stay in the land or dwell in the land. Now, for the Israelites, that was easy to understand, right? God had given the people of Israel a land, the land of Canaan. That's where they were supposed to live and to farm and to glorify God and to worship him and enjoy him and to live according to his word. That was the land. Now, what is the land for us people in the 21st century? It's something that 
we modern people have completely forgotten about or put somewhere in the back burner. It is the fact that God has assigned to each and every one of us a place to live. A family, a community, a church, a work to do, a role in society, a role in the church to fulfill. We modern people think that all of these are things that we can choose. To the point that I can even choose my own talents and decide I'll be a violinist. And God says, no, I gave you certain talents. And I gave you a place to live. And I gave you a family. And I gave you a church. And that's your land. That's where you have to worship God by living according to his word and do his work. God has ordained a good life for us. And we have a responsibility to find out what that is. Stay in the land means find your place in the world that God has chosen for you. Now, some of you know that for six years I was vice president of the University of Bonn. And when I came to the end of my term, I was asked to run for president of the University of Bonn. And I'm not telling you this to boast. I'm telling you this because when I thought about that, I realized in my heart that being the president of the university was not the land God had given to me. It would have eaten up all my time. It would have made me a slave of people who ruled the calendar and it would have left no time for me to come to Bloomington, to preach, to serve God in that little church in Sturum. And so the more I thought about it, the more I was convinced, no, that's not my place. I don't want to do that. And so I didn't. So think about what is the land God has given to you and be there and do his work. And then your life will be a good life. And finally, do good. Wisdom says that the best cure against anger and frustration about the apparent success and riches of wicked people is to do good. And especially do good to those who oppose and attack you. For Jesus said that we should love our enemies. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus never said you should like your enemies. He said you should love your enemies, and that means you should do good to them. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom doesn't say when you're really angry, sit down and pray. No. Do something. Do good. Because that will remind you of all the good God has done for you. And it is an opportunity to pass it on to other people. And by doing that, you will be just and upright and have peace. And so here's a thought. Next time you're really angry, 
do something good. Well, that's not easy. So when I'm really angry, I talk to my wife about it, and she does something good. <laughs> and not to me, you know. That's why God bound the two of us together. Because sometimes she is a lot wiser than I am. But you can learn it. And so start practicing. When you're really angry, do good. Do not fret because of the wicked that fare well. Be patient when godless people attack you. Do good. God promises that all those who trust him and follow these instructions will lead a good life. And that's my wish for all of you. Have a good life. Be happy. And may the Lord's Holy Spirit guide us and teach us to live according to his wisdom. Amen.